Welcome to Humans Are Us, Human Lives, Human Stories, a podcast about ordinary people living extraordinary lives. These are the stories of people that said yes to themselves. Their experiences have helped to make them who they are in this moment. By sharing their personal stories, we hope to inspire others to live their truth. This is a podcast about growth and being one's true, authentic self. Please be advised, this podcast contains adult content and language. Opinions expressed in this show are just that, opinions. And any health-related discussions do not constitute medical advice. Welcome to Humans Are Us. I'm your host, MJ Love. On this episode, I speak with Alexa Silvera. She's a background in law and anti-racial work. She's a practitioner of Afro-dysphoric shamanism. Alexis is guided by her belief that healing is activism, and the reconnection to our ancestral and traditional ways is a revolutionary act. So thanks so much for being here with me today. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. Thank you for asking, and thank you for having me uh, with you today. How are you? I am exhausted, but I am doing well. Uh, Yeah. Good. Yeah, I'm very, yeah, very well. Um, I couldn't be better, actually. That's amazing, especially right now. That's like that sounds like a real good for you. Thank you. We're just gonna dive right in and talk about what you do as a practitioner of Afro diasporic shamanism. Right on. Which is a mouthful. It is a mouthful. And you know, it's not necessarily a term that you will see circulating a lot. I think that'll probably change in the coming years, but a part of the reason why I use that specific term is just to sort of be as honest as possible about the work I do and the place it comes from. It's interesting. And the word shaman itself is a little bit fraught because it's sort of appropriative in the way that it's actually a word that belongs to a specific Siberian indigenous group. That is a description of a specific Siberian indigenous practice. But what we've seen happen is that the word has been brought into academic circles. And from there, it's sort of, you know, spread and become ubiquitous all over the world for a specific type of spiritual worker. Shamanism and a person who is a shaman is somebody who, let's say on a basic level, like energy work in liminal spaces with spirits. So it's like the practice of leaving your body in trance in order to affect change in non-ordinary or like liminal reality. Afro-diasporic shamanism within that regard is me doing that work as interpreted through the lens of my ancestry, which is a beautiful but complicated thing. Um, As I'm a, a person who belongs to the diaspora, my family's from the Caribbean, Jamaica and Grenada, and I don't have the benefit of being able to necessarily trace our practices back to the original let's say, African context that they come from. Because I'm not an initiate of an Afro-traditional religion. I don't claim that, you know, it's it's a beautiful path. But um, up until this point, it hasn't been my path. How do I be as honest as possible with what my ancestors show me, the types of spirits that come and all of this stuff, this incredible stuff, but also do it in a way that keeps me safe? And I guess the last little tidbit I'll add, and it's something that I I think about a lot. So uh, in a Jamaican context, there is a word that I could probably 
very appropriately used to describe myself, which is an Obia woman. And anybody who's Jamaican who's listening is probably going to go, but our traditional practice, Obia, is actually unlawful. Like there is a statute that makes the practice of it unlawful there. It's the Obia Act. You know, it's funny because I... I've really struggled with, okay, so this is this thing that I do and how do I be out and honest with people and what happens when I tell people who are from my community about this. And it can be very dangerous as both a Jamaican woman and also a queer woman to own that. You know, it's, it's, it's been interesting um, to see where that, like what terminology I use and why and what the full story around that specific language is. Thank you. Can you explain what that act is about and why that's so controversial? On a a very basic level, um, uh, the Caribbean and the entire world has been colonized. And we live in a, a world where white supremacy is our norm. And a lot of people are just sort of starting to recognize that and starting to question that and get to the deeper levels of that. But in Jamaica and in across the Caribbean during slavery, there were a number of acts, some of them which I, I don't think are still on the books anymore, but they all popped up within the context of trying to deter slave revolts. <laughs> because what would happen is these people of power who were practitioners of spiritual arts or magical arts or what have you um, were really often integral in the process of resistance, right? Because it's like you have a place of power, you have a a place of um, connection with the divine, you have all sorts of insight, which is supposed to be stripped away from you, which is why one of the first steps of colonization is to like disenfranchise people through um, disconnecting them from their traditional spiritual practices. So it's like the Obia Act actually sprung up um, around the time where a whole bunch of slave revolts were happening in a bunch of different places. And, uh, you know, the enslavers uh, in Jamaica were just especially proactive. So they said, okay, so we're going to make this unlawful and there will be harsh punishments for it. And uh, unfortunately, it just has not been repealed. I think the laws, I don't remember what year it was, but it's like 18 something. It's been on the books for quite a while, maybe even earlier, to be honest, but it's been on the books for quite a while. And while I've heard from some people, it's not necessarily in force, and I put that in air quotes, there's still a huge cultural stigma around the traditional practice and really anything that isn't Abrahamic and specifically Christian. It's it's difficult. Um, there's a, a really sort of lack of understanding of what obia is. It's like obia is anything that is spiritual or ooky or spooky or or not not right in some way. So it's it's a really hard, enduring belief. And I think that uh, even people who have the benefit um, of of being exposed to things that helps them maybe unpack some of that, even have that instinctual reaction of, of like, I'm afraid of this. And this is something that's very potentially dangerous. It makes sense that it's, it's from that time. And, and after 200 years of people hearing that this is a bad thing, no wonder why they're still like internally afraid because that's what all they know. Right. Oh yeah. So thank you for explaining that. Um, that was very well put. Now I feel like I need to go do more research into this. Um, I mean, I think it's the type of thing that if when people find out and they have a context of like understanding what's going on in a lot of places in the world, 
they'll understand like the the persecution of witchcraft is actually an international human rights issue. It's a human rights issue in a lot of colonized countries because of, you know of the reasons that I mentioned earlier, but also it's just like it there's so many different levels and like the intersection of how um the patriarchy suppresses women and what are we doing with the most vulnerable women in society who are often deemed as witches are they actually practicing what does that mean what is a witch you know there's it's a it is a minefield and once you take that little baby toe and you put it in you can't help but fall into the entire ocean um and sometimes it's not pleasant you find you find stuff that's really history not pleasant. has some very unpleasant things i recently learned a little more history of like because we all learned history of slavery obviously <laughs> to, to a certain extent at least yeah. that we don't think about or we weren't thinking about is you know how that's impacted today's world and how things that were people were actually believing, you know, back then to justify this horrible act has trickled down into society today. And white privilege and the patriarchy are two huge things that came out of that. And just so wonderful to talk to people like you who are doing different things and getting in touch with their ancestry, which I, you know, I think everyone should do. Like my ancestry is not very exciting, Oh, but you know what? You shouldn't say that. You really, and I, I, I know you had a feeling as soon as you said that you're going to like, she's going to say, don't say that. I did, um, but, but I mean, like, it's exciting in a different way, I should say. I am reading right. uh, the history of the English, like England witches are right now. So that's really interesting. And so I'm just trying to get in touch with that kind of stuff that, well, that's something you talk about in your work. So I guess we can talk about that is why, um, you know, as part of your practice, you bring in this ancestral element and why bringing it forth as kind of like um, that act of revolution. Ancestral reverence worldwide, like it's a, it's, it's presupposed in, a, in most places, right? People revere their ancestors, people turn their mind and their eyes towards their ancestors. They believe in their ancestors. And whether or not you think of ancestor reverence as a form of magic, it is often alongside magical practices in a lot of other contexts. So why do I do it? For a number of reasons. Uh, And one of those really basic reasons is because it just makes sense, right? Like this is just how it's done. You know, if you're, you're doing all of this work and you're reaching out to all of these powers, whether they be gods or spirits or, you know, the spirits of place around you or, or who and what have you, the, the easiest people, the easiest beings to reach out to are the ones who literally helped you be present. They brought your your incarnated form here. And they're so invested in your care and your um, your betterment and your progress, and they're invested in your protection. So I do it because it makes sense and because it works. But I also do it because I fundamentally want to be connected and rooted to who I am and where I'm from. I do it because it brings me a much greater sense of myself it brings me a sense of like perspective of time and how things reach on and just understanding that there have been people before me and there will be people after me. And my job is part of my job at least is to uh, continue the succession of, of power within my line and work to the betterment of my line and in whatever way I can. But I also do it because 
it feels good. <laughs> it feels warm. And, you know, for so many of us who have histories of oppression, whether on a, a macro or a micro scale, so many of us who um, have the experience of, of family that's often fraught. And, you know, I, I'm fortunate that I have my family, but I also have my ancestors who are like a hyper family that's always present, but presence in a different way. And they're a great place to feel love and to experience love and to see other versions of yourself or other ways to contemplate your selfhood in, in the people who've come before you. Another really great reason to do it is because it makes me politically way sharper, way sharper. Oh my God. Like I started connecting with my ancestors and my eyes opened up. I literally started seeing as if I had been asleep or I hadn't been on earth for a long time. I can remember waking up one day and looking around and just being like, what happened to this world? Where have I been? Why does it look the way it does? And how did this happen? And it, it's really sort of difficult to grasp and it might not sound very grounded, but it's just something about being in connection with that line of people who've been before you really helps sharpen and clarify the moment that we're in. I like to believe that the world is changing for the better, that we are dismantling, you know, structures that have been in place for hundreds of, well, hundreds and hundreds of years. I agree, like getting in touch with your ancestors and also looking at other people's experiences outside of your own are very important. And something I've been really trying to learn more about right now is the collective Black trauma that a lot of people are facing. And though we hear about it a lot in the States, obviously, do you feel comfortable or are you willing to talk about your experience as a Black queer woman living today and what that looks like? And has that shifted for you at all over the last little while or year or so? It has. Um, and I think one of the ways that it shifted is that I am way less tolerant of bullshit. <laughs> Just straight up. You know, I mean, I think for a, a very long time and a lot of us go through the process of being very afraid of being seen as the angry black woman, you know, too loud, too aggressive, too whatever especially through the work with my ancestors and through working at healing myself and also healing the residual wounds that we carry as a result of what they experienced. I have come to a place of being way less afraid of being seen, of being unlikable. I used to carry uh, this acute feeling of like not, not having no within my body because of the trauma of being owned. Right. And dispelling that in some way. And I mean it, 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 it literally, it was literally like I woke up one day and all of a sudden I was speaking differently. I was holding myself differently. I would walk into spaces as I frequently am um, in very white spaces and I would hold myself differently in those spaces. And there's a, a little bit of a, a thing that happens sometimes when you do healing work, you, you have a little bit of a healing crisis, which is I like to think of it like if you pour water into a glass that has oil in it, the you know, the oil floats to the top and it's just like all of that stuff that's being displaced, you experience it as it slips out of that cup. I had a whole lot of experiences of particularly white men being very, very aggressive and very not happy with me taking up space in those places. And it was really interesting to see how 
the way I handled them was night and day. Um, and the same thing with other people in my family, which it was like, we all just had this collective awakening, which is also what happens when you do ancestor work sometimes. But yeah. So, I mean, how have I changed? I take up space differently. I'm way less afraid of being seen in a certain way. Cause I know that people are going to see me however they want to see me and it's all bullshit anyway. Right. So I'm, I think I'm, I'm not as interested in playing the game of, of praise um, and it's not that I'm not interested in handholding because I'm very interested in being gentle and genuine. I'm just not willing to muck about with people who are, um, not coming to me in good faith. And I think those boundaries have been very, very, very needed within the last little while. Um, there are a lot of well-meaning white people who are looking for guidance and they will often go to the first person of color who seems like they're in a, a position to guide them. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of people who are still very stuck in, in certain ways of being and thinking don't actually recognize that um, when you're coming to someone, you have to come to them on the basis of mutual exchange, right? It's This isn't the same old slave model where my job to give information and your job to take. I've become very acutely aware of those things and I've always been political, but my tongue is way sharper now and I'm, I'm better for it. I think that is great <laughs> to hear. I Kudos to you, those ways of changing, I'm sure impacted your life for the better. I know it wasn't always easy. <laughs> oh God, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was hard. But you know what? I think the truth is that when we step into our authentic selves, we give permission to others. Um, and I found that the people who are interested in sitting with me and being close to me now of all races are just better people. They're just like, if they can take me saying, hey, look, I get that you're afraid of your ancestors, but you have to do this work and I'll help you through it. But like, you got to do it. If they can take that, they've got strong hearts. And those are the people I want around me. Courageous people. And it sounds like you've really um, had real change in your life and a metamorphosis of really saying yes to your power. And I think more people need to do that. And I love the word courage that you used. I think, you know, we all, we, we all need to be a little more kind, but also courageous because the world isn't going to change if we all just sit around and not do anything about it. Right. Right. It does. It does take courage. I mean, it takes courage for anybody to specifically within the context of the ancestors, as we mentioned before, it takes a lot of courage. All of us are coming from a legacies of oppression in some way. We have all been oppressed. We have all been oppressors. Obviously, there are different levels of that within different groups of people, and some of those levels are maybe more present than others. To be able to say, I'm terrified. I don't have the answers. There are energies here that I don't necessarily want to interact with, and I don't have to, but I'm going to find the ones that I want to interact with, and I'm going to find the ones that are healthy. It takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of courage, and everybody who is doing that work, I think you know, is, is doing something really miraculous for themselves and their community. Yeah. So speaking of doing the work as a, a practitioner and like a healer what kind of stuff, do you work with or help people work through in your practice? Uh, it's, it ranges. It really ranges. I mean, um, oftentimes we're dealing with the impacts of trauma on a spiritual level the work that I do is 
very much complementary to more traditional allopathic processes. Um, and I often encourage people to, particularly if they're, they're with um, medical professionals or mental health professionals who are open to this stuff, to talk with them about the work that is done with me and like work through that work in the context of their more allopathic arena. Right. So, and it's really important because sometimes things come up and, you know, you have a, you do a ceremony with me and there are things that are unraveling, but the ceremony is just because the ceremony is done. Doesn't mean that everything that is, that comes up is integrated and healed. Like there's a process that you undergo. And I think people need to recognize that any single, every single time you step into, uh, let's say the hands of a healer, you are beginning a process. It's not beginning and ending with them. I often work with uh, the spiritual impact of trauma. We do a lot of work with soul loss and the idea, soul loss, power loss, energy loss. It's that moment of losing a part of yourself when something traumatic happens or a part of you leaving yourself to protect the fullness of you from experiencing the full extent of the pain that you're you're dealing with. I'll give you the example. Awful things or bad things happen. You know, people get into car crashes. Uh, let's say we have person A, they get into a car crash. And before the car crash, they had this you know, incredible love of painting. And after the car crash, for some reason, they can't get back into that love of painting. From my perspective, what I would say is that the part of them who left at the moment of that traumatic event contained the love of painting. So what I would do is I would go look for that part of them. I would bring it back and then they sort of gently push them off into the world and they, they work through the process of reconnecting uh, with the energy that they haven't had present. I mean, it's that. And then there's also a whole lot of other type of work. So there's like psychopomp work, which is essentially the act of ferrying whether they are people or other energies to their rightful locations. So sometimes when people pass away, they are in a state of confusion or they're feeling very tied to this plane. So psychopomp work is the process of like going to those souls, going to those people and helping them um, to pass on. There's uh, stuff like extraction work, which is where we take energies that are not meant or not helpful, that are, whether they're in the body or around the home or around the body or elsewhere that is somehow connected to the, the massive web that is you, we take those energies out and put them in a place where they're not going to be harmful to people. There's connecting people with spirits, like sometimes what's referred to as a power animal or a guardian spirit or um, what have you. It's basically like the helpful and benevolent spirits that want to connect with you at this time. And then there's a whole lot of other bespoke stuff. So it's like, you know, you, you can do as much or as little with trans work as you want. And it's really just up to what the client needs and what the spirits tell me I should do to help them in the moment that they're at. It's an amazing practice that is so versatile and the ability to go into trance, like it really unlocks different layers of spiritual and magical work that um, I would not have had without Thank it. Thank you. How did you get into this type of work uh, or your journey into um, your shamanistic work? I think it's an interesting question. And truthfully, I started out um, partway as a client and as I was uh, in that process of being client, somebody who was interested in healing and interested in liminal spaces and exploration of sort of um, hidden things, it started to become very, very clear that this is something that I should be exploring within my own life. And um, I kept hearing that from 
multiple practitioners. And then one day I ended up in a space somehow, well, not somehow, I had actually been making very concentrated um, attempts and requests at having my ancestors show themselves to me and show the path to me. And not long after I started that, this work started blossoming in my in my life. So uh, yeah, I, it started out with an earnest want to want to connect to my people. Well, it sounds like they really showed you the path of what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. It, and in some big ways, and sometimes it's daunting and sometimes it's terrifying and as it is for all of us, but, um, they, they continue to come through. Um, even when I have not always been the best, uh, project. <laughs> hey, we have, we all have bad days, right? Oh gosh. Yeah. It's very true. And you know what? I think that's also a really important point because we all think that we have to be perfect, um, in our spiritual practice, we think we have to be perfect for our, our ancestors and the spirits and the gods or whoever to want us and to want to be with us and to want to work with us. And the truth is we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be earnest. And that is a really, really beautiful place to start. It really is. And I think, you know, spiritualism is definitely growing in its popularity right now. You see so many people using the words manifestation and abundance and doing ancestral work. So it seems to be more people are exploring these types of things. And I think what you said, it's, it's totally true that, you know, that's great, but we need to remember that this idea that good vibes only, is it really helpful? Yeah. It's not even, it, it's not even remotely true, right? Like, I mean, uh, the truth is that the divine, um, and all aspects of the divine are multifaceted. Um, gods and, and beings are both benevolent and sometimes very not. And the truth is that all things are uh, okay within the proper perspective and within the proper context. And it's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to struggle. Um, you know, the, the beings that you're talking to very often deeply understand um, and, and love us regardless. And, you know, it's interesting you said something about um, manifestation and the way that spirituality is sort of experiencing this, uh, this boom overnight. And I think it's, it's for a number of reasons. Um, one of them being that people are really lost. People are really lost right now when looking in the old systems. They're not even that old, but the systems that we've had within recent memory are not working and they haven't ever really worked, but they're really, really, really not working right now. And people um, are being faced with an alternative and looking for themselves. And at the same time, like I noticed that there's a tendency to very easily fit into the monetization of spirituality. And there's nothing wrong with that within a balanced perspective, you know? So uh, it's not all about what we can get out of the divine. It is, that is definitely something that is there and you can use magic and you can use other means to better your life um, but it's not just about material gain. And I hope that's something that people start recognizing more and something more. Something that's been important for me because I wasn't, I was raised um, in a religious household, not too religious, but then I kind of pushed that all away for me. But in the last like five years of my life, I really found spirituality. And, you know, for me, the most meaningful thing is kind of figuring out on my own and what resonates with me and what doesn't. Right. And I think... Right what you talked about, you know, it isn't always about the monetary gain. It hopefully 
will um, you know, become about more of how you live your life and who you are as a person. Through spirituality, I think it helped me become a much more positive person. It's really helped me look at the world in a certain way. Like I always try to come back to the idea of love and kindness. And I think it's, it's so helpful to approach people in that way, especially over this last year when we've all been dealing with a lot. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I, I hope, at least I think it is, you know. Speaking of last year and the pandemic and how life really has changed for so many people. And you as a person who is a little more in tune to other energies, have you found it more difficult over this last year? Do you have practices in place to help with that kind of thing? Uh, You did mention the word, one of my favorite words, boundaries. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they're huge. They're huge. Um, they're absolutely massive and boundaries are also very much a spiritual principle. And one of the things that I, I have had to do a lot of boundary work in the last year, but, um, I've also had to do a lot of cleansing work, right? I mean, I think cleansing and purification has been sort of the, the staple of the year for me. And the reason being that like when you're dealing with a lot of dense energy, when you're dealing with a lot of dense emotion or just you know, a lot at once, it can start feeling very heavy. You know, having a really good spiritual hygiene routine in place helps you in the metabolization of that heaviness. So it's like you got your spiritual baths, you got your spiritual incenses or your resins or your smokes, whether or not you do uh, any form of banishing work or, you know, you have talismans for that type of thing. There are so many different ways um, to engage in this practice, but that, you know, that has been absolutely massive for me and and my loved ones over the last year. Um, And also rest, right? Like making sure that I'm taking rest and treating rest itself as a, as a spiritual act. Spiritual rest is a thing as well. We have a tendency to sort of like get our hands on some tools and then everybody's like using the tools constantly, constantly, constantly. And it's like, that's output, right? That's energy that you're putting out and it's a lot of energy and it takes a lot out of you. So practitioners of, of magic oftentimes will find themselves being really exhausted really quickly if they don't have like proper rest and uh, rejuvenation protocols. So for me, it's also been a lot of like Reiki sleep, (laughs) as as basic as it sounds, eating well, eating things that are good for my body, um, eating things that I like and cleanse myself. Really basic stuff, but they make a huge difference. The basics are, you know, foundational for a reason. I've been really thinking about, you know, purposeful rest over this, even the last few months, um, because I think we're, we're still very much in a society where productivity means your output and how much work you can do and how many hours you can work in a day. I heard a, an elder once say, we're human beings, not human doings. And like, I just, I, ah, man, it, it's, that cracked me wide open. At yeah. That my moment. therapist, she said that to me too. And I was just like, like my brain just exploded. Yeah. Wow. Like it's such a simple saying, but it's true. And, and, and in so the, true. we need to remember to be, um, 
you know, and, and whatever that looks like for you. Um, and it sounds like you have some amazing practices to keep you healthy because that's so important, uh, especially right now. Yeah. Thank you. And I mean, I'm continuing to, uh, expand my practices and I think, you know, it doesn't have to be super involved and super difficult. Everybody thinks that if you're going to do something spiritual, it has to be a big ritual and you've got to have the certain tools, you know, and actually one of my favorite spiritual baths is really just like blessing some sea salt and putting it in some water that's blessed and bathing in that in my tub. Right. You know, like it's, it's really, it can be really simple and really inexpensive, but those really simple and really inexpensive things can really save well, your that skin. Sounds magical. And if I had a bathtub, that's what I would be doing. You know, the funny thing is in a lot of uh, Afro-diasporic traditions, the spiritual bath is actually something that's originally like a bucket bath, right? It's something that you pour over your head. So people don't have to be confined to not having a bathtub. Even if you have a basin, yeah. it can work. Well, thank you. That because I do miss baths. I find them so rejuvenating. So I'm going to have to try that. Thank you for bringing that up that it doesn't have to be this crazy, complicated spiritual practice. It can be within your budget. And like what you said, as long as you're bringing that intention, that's really what matters. Totally. Um, you know, I mean, it. it's sort of like we can get into that if I don't have the right materials and the right materials are super expensive thing. I can't do the thing. And I think that's also a stalling tactic very often. I mean, materials do matter. I'm not going to say that they don't, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to buy the most expensive thing. That's top of the line right off the bat. Like good salt is salt. You can find good salt at the grocery store. You can find herbs that you can burn in your house to make a difference in the energy at the grocery store. You know, it, it doesn't. And while of course it's also really important to um, support local business owners and small business owners and particularly communities whose technologies that we're working with and like buy from those people, you can also like go to the grocery store and get things that are accessible to anybody. So it, it doesn't have to be a a super scary, super fraught thing. This way it's open to whoever. And um, this is what I love about the people who I've met in the community. As long as you're coming at it with openness and kindness that everyone's just like, yeah, that's, I'll help you do this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, you have been so helpful and so kind to speak to me about all of this stuff tonight. Of course. And thank you for having me. I I really, truly appreciated it. And um, it was lovely to to talk. So if people want to learn more about you, where can they find you on the socials? And I know you have a website, so, um, which I'll be putting all this in the show notes, but you know, where can they find you? Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at Alexis Silvera. Um, if you want to follow me on TikTok, I am <laughs> probably a, a young millennial, but like trying to figure out the TikTok thing. Um, cause it's a lot of fun. You can find me on uh, TikTok as, uh, Alexis Silvera five. Um, and then of course there's my website and my email, which I know you said you're, you're going to link, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty responsive and I love hearing from people who are uh, interested in spirituality and interested in uh, getting deeper into themselves.
So again, thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. You too. Talk soon. Bye, MJ. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Humans Are Us. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to rate and review. Loved this episode? Please share it with a loved one and help grow the Humans Are Us community. Connect with me on Instagram at humansareus or visit the website humansareus.com.